Hey everyone, we just got the news moments before we're recording that Jim Weirich has passed away. We're all deeply sad today and we'll definitely talk more about this in the future. But for now, I would just like to give you my very favorite Jim Weirich story before we get started. Jim and I had quite a rivalry over the years because I wrote the TextMate book and he was such a big Emacs fan, a diehard Emacs fan. And uh, the rivalry kind of came to a head one year at Lone Star RubyConf when my wife was learning some Ruby and she took a class that Jim taught. And so he gave her flack through the entire class, harassing her for using TextMate because she had learned from me. And so then later in the conference, uh, we were all gathered together in one room, you know, 300 some odd programmers. And uh, Jim Freeze was handing out books and uh, making jokes, and he's like, oh, I've got this TextMate book here. I don't know who wrote that. And I shouted out from the side of the room, Jim Wyrick, and uh, everybody cracked up. But if you know Jim at all, you know that the loudest booming laugh came from the back from Jim himself. So that is the sound I will miss most of all. And Jim wins in the end because I'm now a diehard Emacs user. So farewell, my friend. We will miss you very much. Absolutely. Yeah, we're we're all I think really sad to to see him go, and you know at the the conferences just won't be the same without him. And no, yeah, it seems like every time I'd go to a conference, I'd wind up having lunch with him at least once, and uh, we would talk about anything, usually anything I wanted to talk about, and he was always just gracious and helpful, and you know was happy to look at my code and happy to show me what he was working on, and I'm I'm really gonna miss him too. For sure. But Jim would definitely tell us to go do an awesome show about data analytics. Yes, I, yeah, yes, so, he would. So, so let's go do that. We're going to do an episode uh, in tribute to Jim sometime soon. So we're saving all of our stuff for that. Yep. All right, let's do it. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. CodeClimate's new security monitor alerts you immediately when vulnerabilities are introduced into your Rails app. Sleep better knowing that your data is protected. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash CodeClimate. Does your application need to send emails? Did you know that 20% of all email doesn't even get delivered to the inbox? SendGrid can help you get your message delivered every time. Go to rubyrogues.com slash SendGrid, sign up for free, and tell them thanks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 145 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Josh Susser. Hello, hello. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and that is Heather Rivers. Hello from San Francisco. Do you yeah. want to... Hey, hey, Heather. Not You're so our favorite. Do you want to introduce <laughs> yourself real quick? Sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm Heather. I'm a software engineer, primarily working in Ruby these days. Um, right now, I work at a startup called Mode Analytics. Is that just so, regular it... web analytics, or is that some other kind of analytics? Our goal is to make uh, analysts more productive, basically. So if you go and talk to a bunch of analysts from different companies right now and you ask them about their workflows, it sounds very, very inefficient and kind of it doesn't sound like 2014. Like 
they're not using version control. There's no like centralized place where they share all their scripts that they use uh, in these, you know, multi-step analyses. So we're trying to drag analysis into 2014 and like make it kind of like GitHub for data analysis um, is the the snow clone pitch, the like short template pitch, you know. That makes sense. You're saying taking all those huge text files and just importing them into Excel, that's not cutting it anymore? <laughs> it's actually, it's fascinating how big a part of modern analysis Excel still is. Even like just everyone at the very end just takes the results and pastes them into Excel to generate the final visualizations, which is just, it's fascinating to me. I guess it works. They don't use it as much anymore for like the complex in a class I took one time, they said, if you ever want to know where a particular product is needed, like if you're looking for a market where there's a, a void, you know, and, and you could make a product and have it fit in, the way to find out is to ask yourself what those people are using Excel for. <laughs> I completely agree. And that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, so we're trying to make the visualization part um, just, you know, another step in the workflow and just like kind of end to end tools that let people stop using Excel, basically. And I say this as a former Microsoft employee. Oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> so did they disown you then after this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah. Oh, I was I was a big favorite at, at Microsoft. Totally into Microsoft. It's awesome. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of lean startup and they talk a lot about uh, learning and, and how to learn the right things and how to measure the right things. So is data analytics focused on that or is it more on after you've kind of collected the right things, making it into something intelligible so you can make good decisions based on what you know? He means we need a definition. So uh, analytics is, I think, such an overloaded term, especially because that like the media are reporting so much on analytics these days, and and it's like really unclear to them what that means exactly, and it's unclear to a lot of us. It's still unclear to me to some degree, but like there's like radically different things can be called this. So like there's real time analytics, which is like, so if traditional analytics is like, um, you know, you're doing split testing and analyzing the results, you're like steering a big steamership, right? You're like course correcting one degree here and there to get somewhere two weeks from now, right? Real-time analytics is like the red siren that goes off to tell you that there's like a hole in your ship and you're going to sink and die if you don't fix it right now. So those are like radically different things, but they're they're both called analytics. So the term is kind of overloaded, I think. That's a really good point, actually. And which are you focused on? We're focused on the long-term, the steering the ship analytics. So okay. it's um, real-time analytics, analytics has such a specific use. It's like operational. It's for, um, you know, immediate disaster. It's not really for decision-making other than decisions such as, like, should we get our site back online? So is, when you say real-time, you're talking about, like, the, the analytics that analyzes the fact that you just got a bajillion exceptions from the production server and... That means something's probably wrong. Right. Yeah. Uh, abnormalities that are automatically detected in your system. Like there was this article yesterday about Netflix and House of Cards and like how they had a, they were doing real time analytics. And it was like basically their launch party with like a dashboard. And uh, the media reported that as like, that's how they do analytics. And it's like, not really, though. They're not like deciding <laughs> whether to shoot season three of House of Cards based on that. Right. I actually that actually Netflix is one of my questions, although it's a question about long, their long term analytics. 
Right. So I don't know that much about Netflix's analytics. I, I just know that they're kind of an exception to the rule that most analysis these days is actually like dead simple, like shockingly simple. And uh, that's not a problem. Like that is where the value lies, like simple mm -hmm. regressions of just huge data sets is incredibly valuable. It's been right. proven over and over, even by companies like Google, that people more commonly assume have these very sophisticated analyses. I do know that Netflix is kind of an exception and, um, and has uh, some very sophisticated analysis going on. Yeah, I mean, that, that fascinated me because I was I was reading about how they determined you know, they figured out that most people binge watch episodes of series. And I was thinking when I heard that, I, I thought, I wonder who came up with the right question for that, because that's yeah. I mean, I could totally see having lots of analytics that, you know, charts and bar graphs that say which shows are getting the most views or even, you know, which markets, you know, which sorts of people are watching the same sorts of shows. What surprised me was that somebody thought to come up with analytics that says, what is somebody watching after the last show? And does it relate to the the previous show in some way? And that that kind of blew me away because it seems like a big part of this analytics question is asking the right questions in the first place. Heather, can we yes. talk can we talk about analytics versus business intelligence? One is an oxymoron, the other isn't. Where those terms overlap, um, yeah. business intelligence is not a term, honestly, that I encounter a lot. Uh, I think it's just it's probably it's a good mutated. Thing. Yeah, I think it's just the mutated word for analytics that make their way over to the other side of the, the company, like the other side of the building. You know, it's the same thing, though. Okay, so if, so if I'm a developer and I'm talking to a product person and they start talking about business intelligence, I can just map that to the word analytics in my head? <laughs> That's what I've been doing, and it's been working out okay, so <laughs> okay. I think so. On the other side of the, of the spectrum, there's the word metrics. So how, do, how does metrics and analytics fit together? Or I think like, Sure. I think metrics is also kind of, it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean like your, you know, your key success metrics. Um, that's the context that I hear it in the most. It can mean okay. like operational metrics, you know, like the health check kind of things. So it's, it's another term that has a lot of different uses. And then, oh, we're also new to this. I think there, we're not sure about the terms like data science yeah. is another term. I saw a really funny slide from some presentation that said a uh, data science is statistics on a Mac <laughs> <laughs> and a data scientist is a statistician who lives in San Francisco. Heard that too. <laughs> so you've said several things I, I think may be worth touching on. One, you very clearly drew a line between real-time analytics and, and long-term analytics and talked about how you're steering the ship. One of the things I thought you said interesting in there, though, is you said real-time analytics are not what you're using to make those business decisions. And actually, I think maybe that should be amended to real-time analytics should not be what you're using to make those business decisions. I'm not comfortable speaking for everybody out there. But that's an interesting point, right? Like that those charts we see, you know, it, 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 we're kind of obsessed with that right now in the computer world as uh, everybody likes to brag about how they put up this giant screen TV on the wall and there's 65 charts on it. And that lets them know what's going on at any given second. But like you said, that's probably not how we should be basing our business decisions, right? 
Absolutely. That's another kind of metrics that you reminded me of, which is vanity metrics, which are despite <laughs> I love this, those. Despite the name, you know, I think they're really useful. Like having vanity metrics up on a screen in your office is great. It's just like it's a little positive reinforcement that people are really using your product. You know, when you work on computers, you can get kind of disconnected from real users. And I think it's important to maintain that connection. So having vanity metrics on the wall, totally go for it. Just don't make decisions on it. Right. Don't get complacent because the numbers look nice. Exactly. I'm really curious. I really want to get into the nuts and bolts of this. And I've seen so many people build analytic systems or at least uh, build systems to collect information. And I'm a little curious, do you... Do you typically recommend a certain system or database over another for this? And does that make it easier then to analyze the data later on? So that's a tough question because it's so dependent on the situation. But one myth, I think, I think it's a myth. I should mention, I'm not like a data science expert. You know, I'm a software engineer, um, but... Uh, I also wouldn't call myself a computer scientist, and I still manage to get a lot done with computers. Anyway, with that caveat, so another transportation analogy that I like, this one's from uh, the CTO of Cloudera, actually, is that like Hadoop is like a train and like uh, kind of a relational data store is like a sports car. So a lot of there's this myth that Hadoop is like the future. It's like the solution to all of our problems. But it's kind of like a train. It's like not that many people actually need a train. If you need like agility and you don't have a bajillion dollars to set up a train, you can use a sports car to transport, you know, a more common amount of stuff. So traditional relational data stores are actually pretty good for a lot of analysis and, and big companies that might surprise you still use just SQL for their day-to-day -day analysis. And like they just have very special use cases for things like Hadoop. So I guess my next question along those same lines then, and this is getting into areas that I'm not as familiar with, how do you make those uh, numbers or the, the information that you've gathered paint an accurate picture? Because you keep talking about like on the news and, you know, the vanity metrics are really nice for PR, but you basically spin those to make yourself look good. And when you're trying to steer the ship, what you want is an accurate map. You don't want the world as you wish it were. You want the world as it is so that you can make it into port and do the business that you need to do. Yeah, I was just reading, uh, just kind of skimming through Lean Analytics, the, the analytics side of um, the Lean startup. And uh, there came across something I thought was funny, which was like a, an entrepreneur has to constantly keep these two opposing views in his head, which is like, or her head, obviously, which is like, you are the vanity metric side and then the real side where you have to be crushed by the results of your analysis. Um, <laughs> but then you constantly have to simultaneously believe that, you know, everything's great and you're going to do great while making decisions based on the other side, which is like the cold, hard reality of the results of your tests. <laughs> That's really neat, right? The vanity metric, you you throw up on the wall is how fast are we bringing users in, right? And you can just watch that bar climb and climb. It totally boosts your spirits. But probably a more important question like business-wise is, okay, when a new user comes in, how long do they stick around? What do they actually do? You know, the more longer-term questions, the reality of the situation, as you said, right? Well, the other thing is, is that in the Lean Startup, they actually talk about you know, if we make this change, we're still gaining users, but are we gaining them as fast? Are we gaining them faster? Is it making our business better in these other measurable ways? Whereas the, the vanity metrics tell you, 
yeah, we're still growing. Yeah, it's important to choose the right metrics for sure um, in the beginning and, and not get distracted by the others. The metrics that you choose are, are totally different depending on your, your business, but definitely like whatever leads to, you know, your company making money is a good one. Whatever positive reinforcement makes sense for your product. So if we're getting 50 million new users, but they're all on the free account, that's probably not helping us that much. Yeah, sometimes you have to um, you have to balance, you know, trade-offs, like maybe you convert more people, you know, the freemium trade-off, basically, you have to decide where to put your paywall to maximize profits from the intersection of these two opposing forces. Heather, where does your product fit into, say, a typical technology stack on a website? Sure. So basically, we provide this nice, hopefully, web interface that lets you connect to your own data store, like whatever that is. There's just a, a gem and you just run this connector process and you store your own credentials. So we never touch your like database credentials, which is obviously great for all parties. And then um, uh, it just pulls and, and you can use the web interface to query your data and it generates these visualizations automatically and you can kind of have version control for your scripts and and share them with your team like you can authorize you know everyone on a certain domain can see my analysis by default and like can also run scripts on the same data source so like if i'm running this process like everyone on my team suddenly has access to any setup they can just go to the website and verify their email address and suddenly they can like be writing sql to see things from our data warehouse Okay, that maybe another way of trying to get it. What I was asking is, where do you instrument things to collect the data? Are you collecting it in the browser? Are you collecting it in the server? Oh, sorry. Yeah, so I may have misled you. Um, we're not really like a mix panel type thing, or a um, uh, there are many companies that we're commonly confused Kiss, for. Kiss metrics. Right. Yeah, we're not really in that uh, space at all. We're just like making it. It's just a tool for analysts. Um, it's not involved in the collection side at all it's just Got involved it. in the okay. analysis side okay so, sorry so, i should have clarified that okay great comment. so yeah I'm like i'm like this whole time i'm thinking okay they're you know it's like kiss metrics kind of thing okay but but you're actually the next stage it's like after i've collected all the data on my site then you give me tools to make sense of it yep absolutely ah okay important so clarification <laughs> yeah so let's start this morning sorry that's kind of interesting though like how do you recommend people like collect the metrics like i mean especially if you're going to just throw around like some arbitrary uh sql to you know figure things out i mean that's cool and stuff and databases do it well but we would prefer not to you know slow down traffic to the site or whatever what are your thoughts on those kind of trade-offs so that's a good question um i'm kind of new to that but my current solution is um because i'm kind of doing infrastructure at this company is um, just centralized logging, setting up a centralized logging system so that you can just, um, whatever you care about, whatever events you care about, just uh, throw those in a log file in a like an easily parsable way, and then have that all like from all of your servers, ship that to one place so that they're all mixed in together and parsed and searchable and exportable so that later it'll be really on all of those. And you just, you have the whole history forever on this, in this one other place. Gotcha. I know some companies will do like a uh, slave database too, where they'll like slave the main one, but then they'll do their reporting off the slave instead of the main one, uh, which is kind of neat. So that's interesting because you were talking about logging and parsing them. So 
in your analytics, like data can come from anywhere. It doesn't have to come from like a SQL database, for example. Right. So there are these um, ETL systems, extract, transform, load systems that people write generally that are very customized to your infrastructure. So people do various amounts of mutations to their, their production data when they prepare it to be analyzed. I think something that's really common is um, putting it into something like Vertica, like a column-based data store. Um, that's way better for analysis, way more performant generally. And uh, I think the less you can get away with mutating the data, the better. Just reduces everyone's mental overhead for the people that are bridging the gap between engineering and analysis, which is a, an increasing pool of people. So one thing that I'm curious about, do you tend to cache data or generate views or, or things like that for commonly built reports? So things like, you know, you want analytics over, you know, each each data point is a day, but you have multiple transactions or I don't know what you call them, data points, I guess, during each day. And you just want to know how many of them there were. Do you wind up caching that somewhere or creating another uh, database table or view or whatever you call it to handle that? Or do you? That's a good question. Uh, it's not something we have tackled in earnest yet, but it's definitely something we're all thinking about doing in the near future. Uh, so we'll see, but hopefully. Yeah, it just I know that if you're querying a table that has millions or hundreds of millions of uh, records in it and you're trying to pull out specific ones, especially if it's not indexed, a lot of times it's a little bit tricky and can take a while. Yeah, definitely. Analysis takes a really long time and it's it's kind of amazing. Like at Yammer, where I kind of first was introduced to this whole world, analysis often took like just several minutes to run. It had a really nice ETL pipeline that had this, it was on in Vertica at the end. And our analysts just would write these queries that just took like several minutes to run every time. So um, I think a common way to approach that would be to um, work up these analyses on a, like a very su smaller subset of the data and then finally run it on, you know, the full data and have that take like 10 minutes or something. Can we get but, some definitions on um, ETL and column-based databases? Sure. So ETL is extract, transform, and load. And that's kind of like, so maybe you have a production database and then you have like a slave, as James was saying, and then, sorry, a follower. And the follower, you have some kind of automated process that just periodically like takes the follower data and like maybe it, you know, parses something that you're storing a certain way so that it's easier to analyze down the pipeline. Down, and uh, maybe it drops some information that you know you're never going to care about or something and it, it loads it into this other data store somehow. And so that would be an example of an ETL system, I think. Never actually worked on one, but that is my understanding. <laughs> Yeah, I, I spent a couple months uh, working on a project like that last year. That was a great summary. Okay, excellent. Um, and is that something so that happens in, in in real time, or is that something that you run a job and pull a whole bunch of data out that just captures like one snapshot? I'll say bo both things happen, and and sometimes on the same system. Okay. And then a uh, column-based data store is just it's a it's a database that stores things with kind of the rows and columns reversed, kind of at a low level so that uh, certain kinds of analysis are easier. Right, yeah, and yeah, so uh, typically in a you know, relational database, they store all of the data for a particular row contiguously, so it's really easy to fetch all the data for a particular record in one query. But the column orientation is usually you wanna know like all the names and all the phone numbers of people 
So if you mm-hmm. store all the names together contiguously in the in the physical storage, it's a lot easier to do those kind of queries and get okay. the data back. So like like in in active record terms, this is doing uh, I think what they call a pick, pluck, pluck, pluck. Okay. Yeah. Except except the database is structured for that to be very efficient. Yes. Or also group by queries in a more traditional SQL sense, right? Okay. Where, you, where you typically smash them all down to get it like statistics on one particular column or something. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to think about how you think about the data. I've I've done quite a bit with Cassandra, and typically the way that it stores is it stores, uh, you do have the concept of kind of a record, so you can pull all of the name and the value off of each value in the record. But uh, the way that it manages it is the atomic level of data is actually a tuple with the key and the value. And then they associate up to their parent and they tend to build the data, as you said, sort of around those tuples based on what their keys are in the space that they live in. And, and it gets a li- it, it gets kind of hairy to really get it. But when you get it, then you can start to understand how to optimize to get that data out. And it also allows you to ignore any uh, any openings because... Since it's column-focused uh, instead of row-focused, you don't actually have to store nulls or nils. It just allows you to bypass all of that and only look at the relevant values. Ah, good point. Yeah, if a column is mostly blank, then then that column just has a lot less entries, right? Yep, exactly. So we've talked about getting the data and the various uh, means of doing that and uh, those kinds of things. You know, To get more into the specific analysis of it, I really liked what you said, Heather, about we find often that a a very simple regression over a data set is like the best thing. Can you talk some more about that? I like talking about that because I hate it whenever I I think there's a myth the world needs to know. And this is definitely one of those things I hear over and over about the types of analysis that big companies are doing. So uh, I'm sorry, sorry, before you get get into it, could I get one more definition? What do we mean by regression in this context? Um, a statistical regression. So um, uh, I don't know if anyone has a really good <laughs> way of explaining that off the top of their head. I don't. I it's, don't. The, it's the tool economists use, right? It's um, it's basically where you take a set of data and you are trying to reduce it down to the one key changing factor. Am I describing it well? I don't know. Like regression to the mean? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> So the free dictionary says the relation between selected values of X and observed values of Y from which the most probable value of Y can be predicted for any value of X. Yeah, that's so economists do this. uh, My understanding of it, this is my understanding. So if I'm wrong, all the users or listeners can send me hate mail. But my understanding is that you have, you know, a bunch of data like uh, census or something, you know, tons of data. And the point of regression is to try to reduce it down to, that's nice that we have all this data, but we would like to track this one factor. We would like to get it down to this this key factor that we can follow through and see what's happening. That's as I understand it. Okay. So yeah, oh, going back to the, the earlier thing, one example I like of this simple analysis at scale, beating everything else, like just 
beating it to a pulp is like, so I have a background in linguistics and people have been trying to model human language for so long and they've been making these, you know, incredibly complex, nuanced, linguistics-backed algorithms trying to understand human language. And and Google just came in and with just this, the stupidest, simplest algorithms with like a massive amount of data, just like blew everyone else away for machine translation. That's just one example of how simple at scale wins. No, that's a really good point. They used their advantage in data to avoid solving the hard problem, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot to be said for brute force. <laughs> if you're the brute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, blunt tools are very, very useful, you know, giant hammer. That's a good point. So you you try to focus on the simplest way we can get these results and get meaningful data as opposed to whether or not we've built this impressive technological monstrosity. Right. And I think it's kind of a, it's more a reflection of the way people actually do analysis is that like most of it is, is fairly simple. Um, and a lot of it, a lot more than you would think is SQL based. Um, I'm always, I'm just continually surprised how much of uh, the world's analysis relies on SQL and, I mean, honestly, Excel, which is amazing. Yeah, Postgres has some really neat features for this, like uh, window functions, where you can just basically calculate things as you're walking over a series of rows and keep accumulating and stuff. It makes some of those SQL operations way easier to do and uh, can be really useful in reporting. Yeah, people definitely use Postgres for analysis. So you kind of mentioned that you're you're not as much a statistician as you are maybe a, a programmer, somebody who implements a lot of this stuff. So I'm I'm a little curious, what kinds of things do you find yourself doing most of the time? For my day to day, I mean, I only work around analysis basically. I um I really just I'm an engineer, so I'm doing backend, you know, web APIs and uh, infrastructure and things like that all day. But I'm kind of surrounded by conversations about analysis, and I'm very interested in it conceptually. So even though it's not my background, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And it's definitely, that is the target audience for the product that we're building. If you can boil it down to like, I feel like I need the tips least likely to shoot myself in the foot. <laughs> and like, you know, don't complicate common, it. Yeah, yeah. Com- go ahead. Uh, in terms of like doing analysis, you mean? Yes, absolutely. Well, people screw up split testing a lot, I think. They don't bucket correctly. So let's, so they, let's explain split testing for the people that don't know what it is. Sure. So so A-B testing is maybe a term that's more familiar to people. Um, you have a new homepage you want to try out is the canonical example, I think. And it's just like a new image or some some small change. And you want to know which one is going to lead to more signups. So you, when a visitor goes to your site, you use some kind of hashing algorithm to place them randomly into a bucket, either A or B, and then you show the image for that bucket, right? So roughly half of your visitors or whatever, however you configure it, will see one image and half will see the other, A and B. And then you analyze the results, you, you log which one that they saw and, that, and then what they did, and you analyze that and say, well, image A outperformed image B by like, you know, increased signups by like 5%. So we're going we're gonna to stay with A or whatever. Um, and split testing is a more general term, I believe, that just means arbitrary number of buckets. 
And then what are the mistakes people make on that? Uh, I think there are a lot of mistakes initially that people make. One is just from talking to people, it seems like a lot of people's hashing algorithms are based on user IDs or session variables, just like some random value in the session, um, which makes it really hard to analyze across sessions, like uh, logged in and logged out state um, will be treated and logged inconsistently. So one thing I would recommend is to use a consistent value. Don't hash on like user ID, hash on something just random that you, st you start with it in the session or you just generate one for all users. And if someone transitions from logged out to logged in, just like copy that value over and use the same value. That's one thing people screw up a lot. And it okay, so hang, hang on, let me see if I understood that one because that's sure. it's very interesting. So what you're saying is because we do something like user ID, then the idea is there are people crawling around their site potentially that are not logged in. And so I see them as one data point when they're not logged in, whatever the hashing algorithm does for an anonymous or guest user, basically. But then when as they transition over to the other side, they're like, hey, I like this site, I'm going to stick around or whatever. They log in and now I've lost them because that data point jumped over some invisible barrier that I can't see anymore because it got hashed differently. And so I've lost them. And what you were saying is if I would just assign some unique identifier to them at the outset and move that over, I could follow them through the whole system, which might be more interesting. Did I get it? Exactly. And and not only more interesting, but um, it kind of uh, invalidates all of your results if you have any number of these. Like sometimes the, the results of this are so, uh, the differences are so small, you know, it's just like one percentage point, but it's a really important percentage point. And if you do, if you make a mistake like this, you're results are no longer statistically valid. Like you just can't use them anymore. So that's that's a big bummer if you've been running a test for two weeks and you realize you did it wrong and you have to throw out all your numbers and start again. So it's best to think about these things up front. Or worse if you don't realize you did it wrong, right? <laughs> or worse if you base your decisions on junk data. Yeah, definitely worse. <laughs> And then another thing people screw up is um, changing the, the proportions of their buckets. Um, you definitely cannot do that mid-test. That will completely invalidate all of your results. Right. You've got to have like a, an even section going into the bucket the whole time in order to be able to say with any kind of confidence what effect it's having, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. I mean, you talk about how, you know, like you said, you're not even trained as a statistician and and I think that's a very valid point. Like, I'm not either, you know, and and I do work on a lot of these things. How do we do that? How do we pick up these analytic tricks without making the classic beginner mistakes? I mean, is it is it that, you know, companies really need to consult with professional analysts in order to get good ideas of data? Is there some good ways, you know, we can try to avoid making super simple mistakes or... How do you think companies should handle that? That's a good question. Personally, I really think that, you know, someone with real statistical knowledge, because um, there's just a lot that's just totally over my head anyway, even though I've kind of read up on the basics, I think it's it's worth running your assumptions by someone who's really specialized in that. If you can bring on a full-time analyst, that's amazing, but a lot of people aren't in that position. In which case I would recommend not just kind of, you know, reading lean analytics and making decisions that way. 
there are a lot of subtleties to to the actual decision making. But the tools have gotten so good that people from all sorts of backgrounds can kind of jump in and get most of the way there, I think. And and maybe even not screw up, even if they don't consult with a statistician, but I would still recommend it. Yeah. So what are, what are the great tools for, you know, figuring things out? Definitely mode analytics. Mode what? analytics. Never heard of it. <laughs> no, um, we're in beta, actually, but if anyone really wants to try this out, feel free to email me and I'll get you in the beta. But there are, I think the reason we're pursuing this is that we don't think there are a lot of great tools out there. There's just people are doing a lot of analysis from their computers, just command line or Python scripts, running everything locally. The tools are no easier than that. Right. So you said you were doing a lot of work in Ruby for this. Can you tell us, a little, like, is there something interesting in the intersection of Ruby and uh, data analytics? So um, probably not substantively. We're using it because we're very familiar with it. And um, f- for the parts of our infrastructure that kind of we just need to be able to change really quickly, like just like the web interface, it makes sense to use Ruby. We're also using uh, Sinatra in front of some pretty simple services that we expect to build out over time. So I don't think Ruby in particular has that much overlap with analysis, but it's definitely a great language. It's working great for us. So are there any, I'm curious, are there any gems or particular tools that make it easier to do analytics in Ruby? You said there wasn't a large overlap, but is there an overlap? You know, I honestly think Python is the only choice um, for things like this. Like uh, academia definitely prefers Python. So a lot of the the libraries that are basically the only options are are in Python. Um, You're talking about things like NumPy and stuff like that, I assume? Yeah, and NLTK and um, the Natural Language Toolkit and things like that. Academia has taken a stand. They're they're going with Python (laughs) for the time being. But Python beat R? Well, both of them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a syntax thing, right? I mean, like, R is cool and, and stuff, but boy, you know, it's definitely a, a brain leap in the syntax and playing with it, right? For yeah. me, I guess I'm speaking only for me, but it definitely is for me. Yeah. It, well, for a while, it seemed like R was like the go-to system for doing numerical analysis and you know, I hadn't heard that everyone had moved away from that. Of course, I, I think, don't really pay attention. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's a transition so much as people use both and either, depending on the problem. Python mm-hmm. is some, sometimes used just for like, you know, basic. It's just kind of uh, what people use. And then maybe an R regression on top of that or just one or the other. Okay. I have a buddy who's a physicist and they're always dealing with just massive amounts of geological data and stuff and he swears by python and numpy and stuff like that just that's how he does his job i think that's pretty common if if i want to learn more about this are there some good books that i should be picking up (sighs) uh i wish i could recommend some uh i really (laughs) uh book learning you know it's hard uh, I can't can't get through a book these days, so I don't. <laughs> I just learn from the internet. Blogs, blogs. I have the utmost respect for what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so are there are there blogs out there that you follow regularly? Then uh, honestly, no, nope. I just kind of <laughs> shuffle around. Uh, you're, you're I'm a, sure there are great resources, and I wish I had looked them up in advance to tell you, but I just didn't. Is that one of the advantage of going with uh, a company like Mode Analytics? Do you, I mean, 
obviously, you know, you get access to, to your tool set and stuff, but you know, is there some way to like interact with the mode analytics team and, and kind of get access to this insight that the shared insight that you have? Yeah, I think we're going to um, definitely encourage that kind of knowledge sharing, especially among teams, but also we're, we're definitely building products kind of like GitHub brought code out into the open. Like we want to bring analysis out into the open by default. And then um, if it's really, you know, it's, it's like business intelligence, air quotes, then you can make it private. But we want to help people not redo work that others have done and like see how others have done things, whether that's um, for the wide open web or just within their company. That's really cool. Yeah, we think so. Pretty excited about it. All right. Do we have any other more? Any any other more? Do we have <laughs> Do we have any other more questions that we want to ask, or other insights from our experience that we want to share? So a little bit um, outside the scope of the uh, analytics conversation. How is it doing the startup thing? You know, doing Ruby and you know doing all that in San Francisco these days. Ruby doesn't scale. <laughs> Neither does San Francisco. It's really, really team dependent. Uh, I mm. happen to be on a team that I really like. So I think it's great. I think Ruby is such a good tool for this stage of development. And, you know, maybe longer. We'll see. Got to kind of reassess as you go with these things, scaling technology. But uh, right now it's letting us get so much done so fast. Cool. That actually gives me one more question. You talk about how, you know, you like using Ruby at this stage because it lets you move quickly and, and uh, iterate fast. At what point of an application is the right time to start thinking about analytics? That is a really hard question. It's kind of like saying, like, when is it premature optimization? It's like so situation dependent that it's hard to come up with a general answer. But uh, I believe in the kind of addressing bottlenecks as they arise. So if you feel like you don't know what the next step is, especially if there's something that's a really good candidate for something like split testing or cohort analysis, then um, I would say that's the time to get into analytics. I just, I want to point out too, I, I think we talk about analytics like it's something that's really hard. And I think if you have a lot of data, especially complicated data and complex decisions to make based on that data, then it can get hard. But if you're just getting started and, you know, you have 10 people signing up every month, you can collect analytics, you can do A-B testing and start figuring out what matters to those folks. And it's not going to be that complicated because you're not looking at that much data to make your decisions. So, you know, you can start at the beginning and just keep it simple until you actually need something more complicated to give you the information you need. That's a really good point. Um, and that brings up a small distinction, which is like qualitative and quantitative data. Um, so until you reach a certain scale, you can't really do like quantitative analytics. Like you can't get statistical significance. Right. Like one way to make the decision about when to start doing analytics is like when you have enough data to get statistical significance. So what you're saying is that if you only have 10 data points, then each point is significant, I guess, because it's one tenth of the overall no, measurement. No, more, more. I mean, I guess that's one way to look at it. I, I would say more of what she was saying, not to put words in Heather's mouth, but like that, you know, it's, it's like if you do a, a poll, you know, uh, is that poll representative of the actual community or whatever? You have to have enough data in order to know that you've hit a significant oh, segment see. in order to say that you can actually 
use that data to determine things and you don't just have like a, a self-selecting, you know, crowd. Gotcha. Exactly. It might be noise if you have, you know, if you have like a thousand users, um, it might be pure noise. But if you have like 10,000 or 20,000, maybe you can, um, and you run it long enough, you can actually determine causal relationships for sure. Mm -hmm. So Heather, one of the, one of the big problems with, with like statistical thinking is that our brains aren't really well wired for it. And much of the results that we get out of the mathematical analysis are really counterintuitive. Yeah, so absolutely. I, is that is that like a particular challenge in the work that you guys are doing? And you know, what are you do, what are you doing about that? Is there like special stuff that you do to, or do you just assume everyone is statistically trained enough to understand these things? They replace uh, your brain. <laughs> oh, I want that. Can I get Me that? Too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right now, we definitely uh, we assume certain knowledge, but we want to build help site into kind of a um, a place to learn and hopefully increase learning by just making it easier to see what analysts are doing and like let them annotate their work. And um, so hopefully people can learn by example from each other that way. Um, but yeah, I feel like, uh, what was that book? Watership Down where the, the rabbits count and like they have like one, two and many. They have like a yeah. special word for many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. feel like that's totally how humans work too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, lo I love that you use that uh, comparison. I've used that too. Yeah, one, two, three, four, <laughs> many. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've Do you remember the word? Uh, prayer. Oh, nice. There we go. <laughs> I've actually read uh, studies on, on babies where uh, they would do uh, things with them early on to see how well they associate numbers and stuff. And it, it seems clear like they can recognize differences in numbers, even almost right at birth, just by reactions when they hold up different quantities and kinds of toys and stuff. But like, they most naturally recognize like exponential jumps, right? Like, you know, they don't recognize the difference between like four and five, but, you know, four to 16 or whatever, then they register a difference. You know, it's kind of interesting. I saw that and I was really fascinated because I feel like it's so hard for us. We have exponentially later in life after we've had these, you know, integers just beaten into us. And it's like, we're born with that innate capability but we just have to we have to rediscover it yeah it's true i mean in a problem i was working at at work on yesterday you know we're like well it's 200 entries combined with 200 entries how bad is that you know and it's like eh, forty thousand. that's pretty bad but then what if it's 200 entries combined with 200 entries combined with 200 entries well then it's eight million and then it's a whole yeah. different ball game you know yeah it's always a struggle cool well yeah it's cool stuff we're looking forward to see what mode analytics does. Awesome. Yep. Definitely get you guys in on the beta. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, cool. Ooh, nice. nice. All right. Well, should we get to the picks? Let's do it. Sure. All right. Uh, Avdi, what are your picks? Uh, let's see. Well, I've been digging into the uh, some of the more advanced capabilities of Bash lately. And <laughs> there are a lot of interesting things that I could point out in Bash. Um, but uh, just to pick one, I will say fire up a recent version of Bash, that's version 4 or later, um, I understand that certain backwards operating systems don't come with version 4, even though it's been out since 2009. And, and what operating uh, system? <laughs> I'll let you find out for yourself. But uh, yeah, uh, get yourself a recent version of Bash and uh, type in help coproc. 
C O P R O C and check out how to do coprocesses in Bash. Kind of cool. For some uh, less programmy picks, this is basically me becoming an old geezer, but uh, I have recently discovered the joy of knee socks. <laughs> I, uh, I've been. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man. <laughs> Best I've been wearing it, it's it's pretty cold there, is it, Avdi? <laughs> it is very cold here, and I, I have recently been wearing a, a very tall pair of boots. Um, if it redeems me at all, they're a pair of Doc Martens, and I did my, none of my socks were really long enough to work with them, and so I I uh, ordered some knee socks, and I discovered a wonderful thing about knee socks because they go up over the part of the calf, you know, where the the leg starts to narrow again. They actually have something to hold on to, and they stay up. They're like the first socks I've ever had that stay up. So I've I've been uh, I've been using uh, some uh, some Under Armour uh, heat heat gear boot socks. Those have been working pretty well. I also also tried out the uh, the Thorlo uh, combat boot socks. But uh, yeah, love this this uh, socks that stay up thing. Avdi, for, for your next birthday, I'm buying you some sock garters. <laughs> then, then you'll really be able to to like do the old geezer thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, next conference oh, somebody's on. gonna walk up and pull his pant leg up. Yep. <laughs> you know, he used to be the most fashionable among us, I'm just saying. <laughs> Excuse me? Oh sorry. Sorry. Oh wow. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> I'm not sure about where there this is going. Words after the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, for the uh, for for those of you who happen to be within the Victory Brewing Company distribution radius, all three of you, I recently got uh, some Dirt Wolf Double IPA, their new their new Double IPA, and it is just a wonderful celebration of American hop varieties. Uh, if you like wonder uh, flowery hoppy beers, I would say definitely check it out. Cool. Josh, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have I have two videos. So one is uh, a little relevant to our interest today, uh, and that's uh, Coda Hale gave a talk a couple years ago on instrumenting your application to collect metrics. And it was a great talk, and I have a video of it that got recorded when he gave that talk at Pivotal Labs. Um, so that's a, that's a pick. And then I have a second video, and um, this is my... Uh, absolute favorite memory of Jim Wyrick. And this was, you know, Jim and Ron Evans and I serenaded uh, Aaron Patterson, you know, Tender Love at Ruby on Ales a couple years ago. And Jim was really well known for his ukulele and singing skills. So this is Jim, you know, at his best, I think. So that's it for me. Awesome. James, do you have some picks for us? I do. I got to spend some time with uh, Greg Brown this morning pairing on a uh, problem and stuff, and it was so good to reconnect with a, a buddy of mine. And um, he reminded me of lots of cool stuff and, uh, and has me reading lots of interesting things. Um, so one is Practicing Ruby, which is basically the uh, subscriber service that Greg has run for years and just generated like ridiculous amounts of cool contents, like 93 articles. And it's most of them are open now, and uh, the rest will be soon. So you can just go to the Practicing Ruby site and read, and there's tons of great material in there. You should really check it out. And uh, really good stuff. And support Craig if you want to, because he makes more great content. The other thing is, while we were talking today, he turned me on to this uh, cool article about logging. And as I got off the call with him, I, I was reading it the entire time between 
when I got off and, and uh, when we started this call, and uh, it was, it was uh, you know, you think, uh, logging, what's there to know? And if you think that, you should totally read this article because it will blow your mind. It talks about, uh, you know, the, the different kinds of logging, like analytical and data logging and stuff, and, and what, it, what those mean and what a log is and how that's important and how does it relate to distributed computing. And it's just super cool. It's like a novel almost uh, on logging, and it will make you think about things in a very different way. Uh, so two cool Greg picks, and then just to have something totally ridiculously fun. I guess we finally decided it's pronounced GIF now, right? Not GIF, but uh, GIF Pop is this website where you can take your animated GIFs and uh, get them turned into actual physical cards that are holograms. Uh, so then you you move it back and forth, and, and your uh, GIF is animating. This awesome. is what? so ridiculously cool. You have to check this out. Uh, that's it. Those are my picks. All right. I've got a couple of picks here. The first one, I mentioned it on the show, so I'm going to make it a pick. It's the Lean Startup book by Eric Ries. Great book. That's all I'm going to say. And then in honor of Jim Wyrick, I'm actually going to pick a couple of projects that uh, we all use. If you don't use them, you just don't know you use them probably. Uh, Rake, Builder, and then I'm finally going to pick his uh, Y Combinator talk from uh, RubyConf a couple years ago. So uh, those are my picks. Heather, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have a couple of picks. I'm glad you mentioned the logging article, James. Um, one of my picks, I mentioned centralized logging earlier. So uh, I've been using Logstash recently, and I, I really love it. So I pick it. It Basically, you just you put a jar file on all of your servers, and you tell it where. You just configure it so it knows where to find your log files and like what patterns to expect in them. And then it ships all of your logs to a centralized location where they're all indexed by Elasticsearch and it comes with this pretty nice web interface out of the box, uh, like thin interface on top of Elasticsearch so that you can get a really good visual sense for what's going on in like all of your production boxes. Um, so that's been pretty great. And then uh, my last pick is something that's pretty well known, but I just want to make extra sure everyone's heard of it. I was reminded of it earlier this week because of the whole Michael Dunn thing, but it's at underscore Florida man. And it is like the best use of the Twitter platform that I've ever heard of. Basically, um, someone is just scraping news headlines for headlines containing the words Florida man and tweeting them. And when you read them all in a row, it sounds like the world's weirdest anti-hero. Uh, and so <laughs> I find that pretty delightful. A lot of weird things happen in Florida. Yes, they do. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming, Heather. It was a really great uh, discussion. And uh, hopefully folks who are trying to collect data and use it to make the right decisions will get something out of this. Thanks so much. I just yeah, want to remind you. everybody that we are reading Ruby Under a Microscope. We will be doing that episode next week. We're not actually reading the Ruby source code under a microscope. We're reading a book called Ruby. My God, it's made of pixels. <laughs> don't spoil the episode <laughs> alright so uh, I, I guess that's all of our announcements so we'll wrap up we'll catch you all next week I, uh, I forgot a funny part to my story that I opened the show with because uh, I was so nervous but we, we had that exchange at Lone Star and then I talked about and then a uh, year or so later we both showed up at Mountain West in Utah 
And I opened the conference that year, so I knew I would get to talk before him. And I modified my slides uh, so that when I introduced myself, I told everybody I was Jim Wyrick. And I told them there were only two important things they needed to know about me. One, that I wrote the TextMate book. And two, that I just love to talk to people. So I, I told them that, you know, ask your friends to point me out, Jim Wyrick, and then come up and talk to me about TextMate because I like that. <laughs> and uh, he just, he was cracking up. It was great. <laughs> it's funny because that was my very first Ruby conference. I had just made the transition from uh, QA into full-time development. So I had no idea who you were or Jim was, and one of my friends had been talking to me about testing. And so I showed up a little bit early getting back from lunch or early for the conference one of the days, and I just walked in and sat down, and I didn't realize that I had sat next to Jim Wyrick. And I had heard his name because David said that he would pay real money to hear Jim Wyrick talk about oatmeal. But again, I, I didn't introduce myself to him or anything, but I looked at him and I said, I said, it looks like you've been to a few of these things, at least I'm hoping you have been, you know, not knowing that he goes to like all the conferences. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, my friend keeps trying to explain to me mocking and stubbing it. I don't get it. Do you, can you explain it to me? Do you get it? And well, he, he wrote flex mocks. So, <laughs> but he didn't even point that out. He just started explaining to me, well, it's, you know, <laughs> so, it, it was so great. But that, that was my first Ruby conference experience. And, you know, meeting folks like Jim just, it made a huge difference to me coming into the community. So, and here, here's a funny follow-up on that, that exact story that Chuck just told. Jim spoke, I believe, last at that conference, or if not last, it was toward the end. And he modified his slides in two ways. One, he began his talk about oatmeal, um, yes. because David Brady had said that. So he had pictures <laughs> of oatmeal and started talking about oatmeal. And two, at the end, he told everybody he had written the Emacs book, which was a photoshopped version of the TextMate book <laughs> that he had replaced the word TextMate with Emacs. It was amazing. <laughs> so, so Jim Wyrick. <laughs> 